You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to Liberty Buzzard, the podcast for inquisitive minds. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. In this episode, we are going to discuss the United States military and potential war with China and Russia. Will we win? Will we lose? Well, there is a think tank out there, and the think tank is called, let me scroll down, the National Defense Strategy Commission, which is made up of 12 former national security officials and experts. It was tasked one year ago with evaluating the nation's defenses. This is from an article on cbsnews.com. We will post uh, the link, of course. And reviewing the national defense strategy, a comprehensive planning document by the Defense Department that lays out military objectives. Basically, what they said is um, the way that we have spent of the past uh, couple of decades or, you know, in their in their opinions, underspent or misspent, what have you. We are not in a good position to win a future war with a what in the military parlance is called a near peer competitor. So just to explain military parlance for those of you who are non-military, a near peer is like uh, an NFL team playing an NFL team. Uh, and a non-peer would be like an NFL team playing a college team. So our current conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq are non-peer competitors because when it comes to military, the size of military, the type of military, we utterly and completely dominate them. Um but when it comes to the militaries, China and Russia would be considered near peer because they spend a lot of money, even though they're not even close to what we spend. They still spend a lot, their technology and their sheer capacity, especially China, also Russia, their sheer capacity in numbers of bodies at their disposal. And I use the word bodies intentionally is staggering. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to you, Thomas, because I know you have some thoughts it's this. the Zerg rush tactics. Uh, so in World War II, we had Germany, which had at the beginning of the war, the best military in terms of capabilities, technology, officer training. They were more or less the best across the board, best air aircraft. And then Russia, which had the worst of all of those things across the board. And yet ultimately Russia is the power that beat the Germans. We have a narrative that we beat the Germans as Americans, but the reality is of every five Germans who died in World War II, three of them were killed by the Russians and two of them were killed by everyone else put together. And so the Russians are the ones who beat the Germans and they did it by using Zerg rush tactics. So what does that mean? It's from the uh, video game Starcraft. There's these three factions. There's the Protoss, which have very tiny armies of very powerful units. You have the Terrans, the humans who are like middle of the road. And then the Zerg, which have very cheap units and lots and lots and lots of them. And they just overwhelm you with numbers. And I, I suspect that game was inspired by the Russians' tactics. And so it's not just about being better. It's about being able to handle the numbers. Now, what makes me sad about this, and, and suspicious, I will say, is that we have a trillion-dollar military-industrial complex, and they're, they're kind of like the educational-industrial complex, where there is only one amount of funding that is appropriate, and that is more than we are spending right now. I remember watching a teacher being interviewed, be like, what is enough? Like, or as a, a, a faculty member of a, like a public school, like, what's the right amount of money for your school? And they didn't have an answer. They're like, well, we just always want more. It's like the, the, the barren womb, right? The Bible says always wants more. And it, it, the funding for the military is that same way. And so I'm always suspicious when people are like, oh, these other people can beat us. We need to spend more money. It's like, we already spend more money than Russia 
and more money than China and more money than Russia and China together. And it's like, how much is enough? And I, I have some thoughts as to that, but the uh, British and the Victorian age had a really great rule of thumb. And that was our Navy has to be strong enough to take the second and third most powerful navies combined. So if country number two and country number three team up against us and we can take them that strong enough because you know your Navy depreciates, boats that were great in one decade, you know, when cannons can shoot half a mile or useless in the next decade when they can shoot you know, a mile or two miles or five miles, right? There was this huge arms race in the 1900s and 1800s in terms of boat technology. So you don't want to overbuild old boats, but they have that great rule of thumb. And I feel like we don't have that rule of thumb in the United States. The answer is always more spending. Dustin, what do you think? So there is a book, uh, I believe it's called the Pentagon Papers, or that's the HBO version of the book out there. Anyway, there was an old HBO documentary, not a documentary, I'm sorry, a mockumentary, made of uh, this book of the Pentagon Papers, which was written by someone who worked in the Pentagon back in the early or late 80s, early 90s, I'll just say all of 80s. And this individual documented the perversion, and I use that word intentionally, perversion, that is the military procurement system. If you want to talk about waste, fraud, and abuse, and just pouring billions of dollars of tax money down the toilet, let's talk about the military procurement system. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I am the mil I'm a member of the mil United States military. I'm a reservist. I'm proud of it. I drill. I do my commitment once a month, and I'm staying ready to go if the flag is raised. That said, the amount of money that is spent is absolutely mind-boggling, and it offends me as a taxpayer. Because um, <laughs> you pay for the military that pays you. Like, it's this big We all do. Circle. I know it's kind of circular. It's like Robin <laughs> Peter to pay Paul. But at the same time, it's staggering the amount of money that we spend on our gadgets. Now, where I got this uh, article from, folks, was from a Facebook post. And this was posted by one of my former battery commanders. He was a captain when I was a new lieutenant 15 years ago in the Marine Corps. And I think it's important to read what he read. He is a, still a professional Marine. This is what he does is for his full-time job. And I respect his intelligence because he's a very intelligent man. And he's right in the thick of it. So let me read his comment. It's kind of a long one, so bear with me. Not a surprising report from CBS and thankfully free of political vitriol. We have squandered much of the competitive advantage we have taken for granted since the Persian Gulf War in 1990 through 91. Make no mistake. Our individual equipment and vehicles are world-class, and they are. We're talking about the Joint Strike Fighter. We're talking about our tanks. We're talking about our vehicles. World-class. They're insanely good. They are. But the American people have paid for it in spades, but so are everyone else's now. And he's talking about everyone else's. He's talking about near peers, China, Russians. They got some pretty good gear, and they haven't had to use them. They don't fight these extra uh, or these non-peer competitor wars like we do. Well, Our Russia kind of sort of does. Yeah, I mean, they, they, their they gear is, is showing up in a lot of places that may not be Russians, yeah. you know, actually wearing the Russian body armor, but somebody's wearing that Russian body armor. And that's true. Well, let, me, let me finish. OK, let me, yeah, keep going. Let me keep going. Finish this little comment. Our advantage is further offset by being committed across the globe against non-peers to achieve goals that will ultimately make dubious contributions to overall national security agreed 
Throughout the last three decades, we've ignored our nuclear enterprise, allowed ourselves to remain beholden to treaties that have, that have either been ignored by other signatories or simply become outdated and crippled our industrial base. And he goes on, uh, but that's the, that's the meat of his comment. Um, and I think it's usually important. Now, here's my addition, Thomas, if you'll spare, if you'll give me a couple more minutes here and I'll get pass it back over to you. Here was my take and my addition to what he said. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I will add only this. In an America where a very small portion, very small portion of the population is physically able or willing to fight, who will go to war when the last of the willing join? Big guns and fast planes are nice to have, but do not a war make. War is about people. It always has been. It always will be. Humans must do the fighting and the dying. Do the people of our nation have the collective gumption to fight? I hope they do, but I have my doubts. And this is based on anecdotal evidence and my, my perception as a, someone who's in the military and observing the United States population today. Uh, so let's think about this in the context of the greatest generation. Back in the draft of World War II, I mean, they had a draft. Did they really need a draft? That was arguable because everybody was joining anyway. There was a story. Um, I have to go dig it up. An old news story of men who were committing suicide. They were so destitute and depressed that they were committing suicide because they were not physically able to join the military. And they held themselves in such low self-esteem and they felt such shame that they were not able to join that they killed themselves. That was a different attitude, a different time, and a different generation. And I don't think that we have the same type of attitudes when it comes to our collective defense today. Thomas. I disagree. It's your turn. Uh, and I disagree uh, because that's not how Americans were in the 1930s. The Both parties, Democrats and the Republicans in the 1930s and, and even early 1940s, were committed to not getting involved. We don't want to go fight. No one wants to go fight. Uh, even when the president wanted to go fight, he had no consensus from the American people. And it all changed with Pearl Harbor. It changed in an instant the tone of the country. And I will say the same thing happened uh, after September 11th. Like there was lines outside of the recruiting uh, offices the next day. It, and I feel like the Americans are the same today. Like if we, if we were legitimately attacked by an actual nation, there would be lines, people would be signing up and they would be eager to go. If, if we were actually being attacked, what people have a hard time getting excited for is we are going to go put ourselves at risk to go guard some other country. I'm going to go sit in a bunker in South Korea just in case the North Koreans invade. That is not exciting. Nobody nobody wakes up in the morning as a child and be like, you know what I want to do when I grow up? I want to guard South Korea from the North Koreans. I want to go guard Latvia. I want to go guard Iraq. Like These like occupational, kind of more imperial-type occupational forces it's harder to get excited for that than, oh my goodness, the Canadians are invading. And I tell you what, if the Canadians inv actually legitly invaded, we would sign up in droves and we would push the Canadians right back to the frozen wasteland they came from. <laughs> that would be the most polite war ever fought in the history of wars. <laughs> We'd fight it with paintball guns. You know, I'm going like... to shoot you, Noe. Oh, I'm sorry. 
We actually uh, have had, yeah, gone to war Thomas. with Canada a couple times. There's the famous pig war. Uh, there was some. Yeah, there was this uh, river that was the boundary out in the west, but it kind of deltas at the end, and there's some islands inside of the delta, and it was undefined who owned those islands. And there was an American logging camp and a Canadian logging camp on this island together. And at one point, one of them got super drunk and attacked the others. I think it was the Americans that got drunk and attacked the Canadians, which would be typical. And they they fired into this Canadian camp and with their guns and then got spooked and ran away and they hit a pig and i tell you what on this island there are statues of this pig everywhere like for people in that from that part of the world this pig is celebrated and remembered and everyone else is like what but it's known as the pig war between the united states and canada but anyway back to military and thomas umstat with the award for most obscure military reference of the day <laughs> yes uh, but anyway, back back to military funding. I think you are correct on something, and I want to agree 100%. We have been, um, and I want to use a metaphor. When you have a football player, and they come in from high school and join a college football team, that football player is metamorphosized over a two-year period. So they typically are a redshirt freshman, and they are conditioned. Their body is changed based off of the role they are playing on the football team. So if they're a wide receiver or a skilled position, they often slim down and they get very lean and very fast. If they're a lineman, they bulk up and they get very big and they slow down to, to be able to, so their body can fill the role that they're supposed to, to serve on that football team. Because if you're a lineman, it doesn't matter really how fast you are as much as how strong you are. And our military has been serving a role of fighting asymmetrical warfare for the last 20 years, where, like you said, non-peer opponents, you know, when you're not fighting a team on the other side that has tanks, you don't really have, are incentivized to build new anti-tank technology, right? Like we have all of these anti-tanks, Abrams tanks, and we use them against infantry, which is not what they are designed to be used for, right? The Bradley fighting vehicle. It, hey, a big explosion is a big explosion, but but we haven't had to build like an Abrams 2 or even invent what an Abrams 2 would look like because the other side doesn't have tanks. And like, it's as true with the boats that we're building. The new destroyers we're developing are designed not for fighting other navies. They're designed for fighting little floating, tiny floating pirate craft. And we're not talking like eye patches and sails. We're talking about like a, a, basically a speedboat with some guys on AK-47s. We're creating boats to counter that, which our new boats are really good at doing that. They have really shallow drafts and they have like jet ski engines, but they're not really designed to go against like Russia's Navy or Canada's Navy or some other pier. And when you're crafting your, your military for one function, it's hard to have it on a dime say, oh, yeah, we're moving you from center to wide receiver. We need you to lose 40 pounds and you know be able to run twice as fast. The military is not like, oh, yeah, we'll just push a button and make that change. It's not going to happen. But I will say, what's the likelihood of us actually going into a war with a near peer that has nuclear weapons? Like we haven't since we developed nuclear weapons, and I don't see a way for us to do it. I feel like if we're going to fight China, if we're going to fight Russia, we're going to do it through proxies like we have for the last 80 years. So that would be, bunch... if, you're, if you're discussing probabilities, that would be the most probable course. The problem, the problem with probabilities is that you don't know the unknown unknowns. We didn't know September 11th was going to happen. We discounted it greatly. So you never know, you know, we didn't know that Hitler was going to do what he did. We didn't know that the empire of Japan was going to uh, take over the entirety of Asia and and be become the juggernaut that it was back in 1939. We just didn't know those things. We had an inkling, but we discounted it. Um, 
And so we just we 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 can't even begin to imagine when the next the when the next one's going to kick off. It's going to take us completely by surprise, just like they 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 do most of the time. But you just never know when when it's going to come. So and as far as what you said Thomas about you think that, you know, it's 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 the marketing that's getting people recruited. Maybe you're right. And from my perspective, I hope that you are right. But I think that there's something underlying the marketing aspect of what are we going to war for? I think there is a shift in American culture. And of course, we always go back to Rome, you and I, right? Um, and when Rome decided that it wasn't, uh, it was too good, the Roman citizens decided they were too good to fight for themselves. They always wanted to hire out their armies to other uh, uh, allied nation states. That's when you know, really Rome decayed and fell because Rome was built on its army, what Rome was built on its military might. And, uh, you know, you could argue that the United States was built primarily on economic might, but with a good helping of military might, uh, starting with the uh, World War II. And if we can't sustain our economic might with a strong military, then I think that um, I, I think I think we are going to round the corner in terms of what we we're able to do as a nation. Now, it could be because there's a phenomenon that we always prepare or most sides of a war prepare to fight the last war. Uh, and they're always surprised that the new war has completely different rules. So we fought World War One, French did, and they were expecting World War Two to be the same as World War One. And they got into their trenches and they're like they're ready to defend the Germans in their trenches. You know, same trenches in some cases, I think, as they had in World War One. And the Germans flew over the trenches with technology that did not exist, dropped guys behind the trenches and the trenches were useless. France was conquered in like a matter of weeks. And it may be that every that your speech about war will be fought by men may be entirely wrong. Like that, that is a I didn't fundamentally say men, Thomas. wrong. I said humans. But what? Well, okay, so that the fight that the war will be fought with humans may be wrong. It may be that the next war is all about who has the better robot army or the drone army, and that. It's all about drones and cyber warfare. And it's like the war of the geeks. <laughs> it's like, that's the war we need to be preparing for. And frankly, that's the war we're already fighting. Like if you understand that that is what war is, that it is attacking people's infrastructure, attacking people's democracy, attacking the institutions that uphold the nation. Like, how do you win? How do you defeat a Russia? Well, you can invade them and like take over, but it's really hard. But if you can get Russia to kind of crumble from the inside by finding the weak points and pushing on those weak points with digital technologies and digital methods, well, it's like, well, gosh, are, we may be doing that. And the Russians are definitely doing it against us. And the Iranians, right? When Iran was a get angry about the sanctions, did they send terrorists to go blow stuff up? No, they sent hackers to go cause trouble. Like that may be the new war. And I tell you, if you're needing people to sign up for that war, there's already lots of Americans signing up for cybersecurity and digital, like digital fighting. And the, the kind of folks who wouldn't lift a finger to put themselves in harm's way will totally drink Red Bull and do some hacking on the side. Uh, and so it may be that buying lots of expensive tanks is actually exactly the wrong thing. And what we should be doing instead is having whole boot camps for cyber warriors who can go sit and drink their Red Bull and actually know how to do hacking and how to do, you know, SQL injections on websites that are key for Russian communication or whatever. Um, so that's just a thought that, you know, we may be spending money in entirely the wrong places. So I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. Um, and I know many people and I don't disagree that today's war, today's Cold War 
is fought uh, in cyber. And we've done a pretty good job ourselves. I mean, yeah, we, we talk a lot. We give a lot of credence to the Russia's meddling in elections, the China's uh, meddling here and there. But let's not discount the amount of meddling we've done. And most people don't know, but we've done a fair, a fair share of meddling. We uh, pretty much sidetracked Iran's nuclear program for a good while with uh, with meddling, with a virus. And we were pretty effective at it. We continue to do it. Most people don't know about it. It's a very understated, very cold war most people don't know about. Now, here's my take, Thomas. And, you know, predicting the future is dangerous, right? But if I was a near-peer competitor, if I was China, if I was Russia, and I knew that America's strength um, was in its gadgets, I would do everything I could to neutralize those gadgets. And our gadgets these days that we make, the newest gadgets are heavily reliant on GPS technology. They are heavily reliant on uh, communication, especially internet communication, intranet communication, et cetera, et cetera. Whether it's an EMP, some type of, you know, I personally think that if we kick off war with China, satellites are gonna start falling out of the sky like rain. Um, Which leads us actually to a comment we have some, from somebody watching live, oh. William, uh, says the next war will be fought in space, 25% joking. And I know we feel weird saying, right. oh, the next war is going to be fought in space. No, I think you're exactly right. I, and and yeah. Trump creating a space force, a lot of people thought, oh, that was just PR. No, like for the exact reason that you just said, Dustin, about how important GPS is, how important internet communication mm -hmm. is, and how dependent that is on having control of your low Earth orbitals, those geosynchronous uh, satellites that uphold the core of your internet and your communication. If the GPS satellites get put down, there's no replacement. It's not like, oh, we have this other backup technology. That's not true. For locating. That's not true. I'll let you finish, but that's not true. I'm going to make my point. Go ahead. Make your point. So I will say we as in civilians don't have a good replacement. I wouldn't be surprised if you military people have your secret, you know, replacement technologies. But go ahead. What's what's the backup of GPS? So it's a super secret thing called a map and a compass. <laughs> There's no such thing. <laughs> Those, all so the what I will tell gone. you is that in my personal opinion, the smartest military commanders out there not only train their Marine soldiers, sailors, what have you, in the most up-to-date technology, but they also embrace uh, the old technology, knowing that the up-to-date technology can uh, fail and actually frequently does fail even in training. Um, so uh, in, in the artillery community in the Marine Corps, we have something called charts and darts where we fire our projectiles up to 15 miles based on a little pin and a big sheet of graph paper. And it's pretty stinking accurate. And a lot of books and some graphical slide tables, if you don't know what that is, you know, Google it. Apollo 13, the movie, and all those little wooden things that they slid back and forth like that, that's the old fashioned calculator. That's what we used to use. I was actually trained on that when we first came in. I think they're getting away from it. I think it's a mistake because I guarantee you the next war we fight, there will be an EMP. And I guarantee you, because that is our center of strength. And any enemy that is trying to neutralize us, that is uh, that, that has a brain cell in their head, is going to cut out our electronic communications because a vast majority of our soldiers and Marines and airmen, you know, God bless all those people in the air, think about how dependent on electronics they are. And if you can neutralize that, holy moly, you have put us on our heels. And you sound like uh, such no, an old I'm not man. Like, back when I was here, a kid, we did we used pen and paper for shooting our artillery. We didn't have no well, think fancy about the current conflict, computers. Huh? Think no, about you're... the current conflict. 
I mean, the, the current conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. Why are we getting our butts kicked when we have all these super? Now, we're not really getting our butts kicked. It's like Vietnam. We we're doing well, but we're not we're not defeating them. You know, in the thirty days like we want. It's because these insurgents they you know they just they remain around as long as they're there. We've lost uh, or we we are not winning. And um, two, they're using incredible simple technology that is very hard for us to defeat. So when you talk about IEDs, you're talking about pressure plates, IEDs, you're talking about two pieces of metal and a little nine volt battery connected to an old artillery round, boom. I mean, how do you defeat that? So especially in Iraq back in 2006, 2007, the insurgents, they gave up on trying to be you know, our, our peer. They knew they couldn't do it. So they went race to the bottom in their terms of technology. And it was very, very effective. Just like George Washington did to the British in the Revolutionary War, his strategy was not effective because he won every battle. He lost most of them. His strategy was effective because he remained. And as long as he was alive, as long as he had an army, the British couldn't win. Same with the North in the Civil War. The North didn't win the Civil War by winning battles. The South was convinced sure. if they could just win enough battles, they would win the war. And they would win battle after battle, and they kept losing the war. And ultimately, it came down to who had the most salt, right? The South ran out of salt. There's a lot of other things. But the salt, South ran out of good sources of salt. And you're like, well, why is that important? Well, without salt, you can't preserve food. And without preserving food, you can't keep your army in the field. <laughs> it's like the, the South troops, when they finally surrendered, the troops with Lee, he had veteran troops that were basically the best troops in the whole war, the guys who'd survived that whole time. And if that last train that came had had food in it, they would have kept fighting. But the, they got the last train, they opened it up, and it was more bullets. They're like, we don't want more bullets, we want meat. <laughs> it's like an army marches on its stomach. We have another comment from another live viewer. It's Tom Selstrom, and he says, Air Force Space Command, sometimes referred to informally as the U.S. Space Command, is a major command of the United States Air Force. It is primarily Space Force for the U.S. Armed Forces. I believe it's a PR stunt, uh, the new Space Force that Trump is doing, uh, because why do we need a new Space Force when the Air Force uh, funding could be boosted? Uh, the Space Force when Air Force funding could be boosted. Uh, Dustin, your thoughts. Um, is it a PR stunt uh, with Donald Trump? Almost certainly. Um, is a space force <laughs> needed? That a PR for... stunt. <laughs> it, I mean, let's call it spade a spade. Yep. Is an is a space force needed when we have an air force in today's day and age? That's very arguable. In the future, I believe that the two will need to be separate because we have the air of the Earth, which we need to dominate. But then, in the future, we will need to dominate the space as well. And um, it's the stuff of sci-fi, but I believe, you know, whether it's 100 years, 50 years, 200 years, however long it takes, <laughs> there will be such a thing as a space Marine Corps. And my only saddest part of me is that I will be too old to join it. The wrong, the uh, wrong age to be a, a yeah. space Marine. I, I will say you could make the same argument about why do we need an Air Force? Because in World War II, we had the Army Air Corps and there was no Air Force. So it was the Army, the Marines and the Navy. And, and we the same argument was made. Right. And we broke off the Air Force partly because the way that the Air Force uses aircraft is different um, fundamentally than the way the Army uses aircraft. In fact, guess which branch of the military has the most aircraft? 
It's not the Air Force. It's actually the Army still. The Army has more aircraft than what any of the of other aircraft? branches of the military. But the function of those aircraft is a tactical function. It's aircraft like um, close-in fighters that are like tank hunting airplanes and lots and lots of nope. helicopters and tank hunting helicopters. Mm, helicopters. The Army has yeah. helicopters. They have no fixed-wing aircraft. So not anymore? They got rid of all their warthogs? Uh, the Army had... never had warthog. The warthog was always an Air Force function. War... Okay. See, this is why I have you on the show to, to correct me on this. So they don't have fixed wing aircraft. They have rotating. I was aircraft, useful right? today. <laughs> You're always useful, right? So they have they have helicopters. And they have lots and lots of helicopters. But the way you use helicopters and the function that a helicopter serves is fundamentally different from the function that an air uh, that the Air Force serves. Like the Air Force will have an airplane take off from Kansas, fly all the way around the world to Iraq, drop a bomb on a bunker and fly back, at least at the beginning of the war, we were doing that. And on the way, it was refueling like six or seven times and the mission would take like 20 hours. It was crazy. And that's not an, an army thing. The army would not operate that way. They have bases closer in, but it made sense from a strategic point of view. And when money is basically unlimited, why not have your, your B2 bombers take off from Kansas and fly around the world? Uh, but I do think that that's a, an interesting argument. And I don't know when the Space Force is needed. I guess the real question is when one of our near peer competitors builds their own equivalent, we'll definitely need one then, right? Like if China, and China's already starting, China has a different philosophy. Their uh, space philosophy is about shooting down um, satellites from Earth. So instead of having like ship, they're not trying to build a space fleet. They're trying to build a ground defense that can take out the space fleet. And it's a, a like a philosophical or religious position that may be better, maybe worse. And there's really no way to know until the war happens, right? Like you have all I these I think it's actually better. Okay, why? I'll tell you why. Um, if you think back to World War II, we did not win because we had the best army in the world. We did not win, when I say best army, because we had the uh, best trained soldiers, because largely that is not true. We had a nation full of conscripts. And over time, they got to be the best. When we first came in, we were we were dismal as far as uh, tactics were concerned. Um, so we didn't win the world war, World War II because we had the best army. We didn't win because we had uh, the best um, tanks. And I'll use tanks as the primary example here. Uh, the Germans, by the time we came in, actually had some pretty good tanks, and they got very good by the end of the war when they were defeated. The Russians had some pretty decent tanks. They Their tanks were They had one good, good tank that they made zillions of, <laughs> the T-34. There is, <laughs> there is the exact point I'm trying to make. Our Sherman and the Russian T-34 defeated the Germans, not because that they were the best tanks, but we could make a lot of them, and we could make a lot of them really, really fast. And so when you have, and I don't know the exact ratios, I'm just just uh, shooting spitballs in the dark here. When you have five Sherman tanks to one German Panzer, I mean, you just have a numbers problem. The, the Germans can't win that no matter how good their tank is, no matter how good their army is, no matter how well-trained you are, when you have five to one, you just, you, eventually you're going to be overwhelmed when it comes to time, when it comes down to time. And um, you have same tanks thing. where they have no tanks because it's not like you have five Shermans and there's the one Panzer. It's like you have tanks everywhere and the Germans can only have tanks in some places and wherever they don't have their tanks, they have a huge strategic disadvantage because however bad your tanks are, a bad tank is way better than no tank. Yes. Sorry. Keep, so keep my going. point, bring it, bring it back to China. So I think the point of being able to, when it comes down to war, and you have this incredible uh, world war where you the, the the lines of economics are completely destroyed or altered, and um, materials and goods are more expensive to make and they're harder to come by. 
the nation that can produce more things faster or has more things stockpiled is going to be the winner. I think China's strategy, uh, they're looking at what they have at their disposal and they're looking at what they have to face us. They can't outspend us. They're never going to outspend us in the world as we live in right now. So what they're doing is the smart move is they're making a whole bunch of stinking rockets. They're going to out-rocket us. And like I said earlier, when it comes to GPSs, when it comes to satellites, when it comes to all that kind of stuff, they're going to shoot as many stinking rockets as they can in order to neutralize our competitive advantage or what we call in the military our center of gravity. So I think in terms of mass production of cheap stuff, China's got the right idea. Now, you know, if we don't end up coming to a knockdown drag out fight and we eventually colonize the moon and Mars and, you know, you know, we have that type of uh, science fiction type event come to reality. In that case, our competitive advantage will be realized and the Space Force will be a legitimate thing that will continue to prove dominant. But until that time and the world as it lives in right now, China's got the better strategy. It is interesting. So Heinle, a lot of this that we're speculating on, science fiction writers have speculated on for a long time, which is useful. It's a speech, right? It's, it's yeah. all speculation. There's a great book by Robert Heinlein, who's the father of military science fiction, and it's yep. called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. And the premise of the, of the um, book is that the moon is the United States and the earth is England, and the moon is declaring its own independence from the earth and basically who controls the earth the moon has a lot of control over the low earth orbitals because gravity is in your favor right so when the moon is fighting earth it's really easy to drop moon rocks on the earth which are very devastating to the earth whereas it's really hard to send something from the earth to the moon because you're fighting gravity all the way uh, so I think that uh, whoever gets the first military base on the moon may have an advantage. We have another comment uh, from a listener I want to put up on here on the screen. Tony, I uh, was at Messias. Um, Messias. Uh, the first this mission of the... Marine of mine, Thomas. And <laughs> nice. I'll explain this comment to you. Go ahead and read <laughs> so, it. Uh, the first mission of the yet-to-be Space Force should be uh, to police uh, all the space trash floating around out there. And that great comment. Dustin, your thoughts? So... Uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, when you have a very messy area, all the junior Marines are going to get online, are going to clean up the area, and that's called police call, and they're picking up trash. So, uh, we did that. Omicius there, he's, uh, I think he's probably hit the nail on the head. Is you know, we're going to get online and we're going to, you know, clear out all the space trash up there. So, yeah. This is actually a big problem and, and a big risk if, if we ever had a space conflict. Uh, the problem with space trash. It, which are these little pieces of metal that are just floating around, you know, orbiting the Earth, is it doesn't take a lot of it to create a lot of trouble, right? When you and because it's these are like bullets that are constantly flying in terms of speed, and you're in this very you know thin uh, international space station, and they have a lot of trouble hitting space trash, and that's a, like a big risk, and like. They've been they've been colliding with space trash, and actually, the United States government offers a service where we try to track every piece of trash <laughs> orbiting around the the planet. You know, every time there's some sort of issue, and a you know screwdriver floats away from an astronaut, they they're trying to track that so that when it comes back around, uh, they know if oh no, that screwdriver that we dropped 20 years ago is about to hit the space station. You know, brace yourself. Hmm. It, there's no way we could do that if we actually like started blowing up satellites where the one satellite is now 10,000 pieces of space trash, some of which are super tiny. 
very risky. And a war, so just like a nuclear war could poison the Earth, a space war potentially could poison the low orbitals, where suddenly it's almost impossible to have to keep a satellite in the sky because there's all these little particulates that it's colliding into. And and really, the 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 theme of this episode is we really don't want to go to war with China. <laughs> there's no there's no winning. There's only who's going to lose less. Uh, we don't want to go to war with Russia, and that may be why the next fighting is going to be in cyberspace because an actual traditional war is so costly that there's no justifying it. There's no way to make a case for them or for us to initiate the war because it's so destructive to the economy and to society and to yourself, right? Because everyone benefits from GPS and you don't want to knock those uh, out just to hurt the other guy. I, I would, I would, I'd be lost for the rest of my life. <laughs> I mean, if I if I didn't have Google telling me where to go, I just I would I would be lost. And let's not forget Vicini's incredible advice. Uh, I think the, the the couple rules that he mentioned was number one, never get involved in a land war in Asia, and of course, uh, never challenge a Sicilian when death is on the line. So. <laughs> I yeah. think uh, that is a great place to end it. I do want to give a shout out to our sponsor. Uh, this episode is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Find out how to get Tom and his team on your team at taxmantom.com. And do let us know if you like this live format uh, in the afternoons. This is a new time period for us. If you like this, uh, do leave a comment. We may make uh, Thursdays at 4.30, Thursdays at 4 o'clock an ongoing thing. Let us know in the comments if this is something you would like to tune in live. We definitely like getting live comments uh, from you, especially when you fact check us. That uh, makes our show that much more accurate, which we as buzzards, we want good old dead accurate news. Nothing too cutting edge too much uh, fake news. Uh, Dustin, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think uh, I'm just going to pitch this book, which I'm not getting any money off of. But if you want to know about the disgusting perverted procurement process uh, that is the Pentagon, I highly recommend the book called Boyd. That's uh, B-O-Y-D, Boyd by Robert Corum. We'll, uh, we'll put the Amazon link in our show notes. Uh, great book. A phenomenal book about a phenomenal individual and also about the wasteful spending that is our procurement process. All right. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. I'm Dustin Hammett. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard.